Good evening. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. Tonight is a special occasion. Indeed, we have gathered to hear God's word, but also to celebrate God's call on the lives of John and Joshua to ordain them to the office of deacon. I think we can begin by looking at some of what Scripture says about the office of deacon, which is admittedly not a lot. Acts 6 and then 1 Timothy 3. But we will look at Acts 6, the first seven verses, which most scholars see as describing the origins of the office of deacon, or at least prototypes of the office of deacon. Some might say that, well, Luke never uses the term diakonos, deacon, in this passage. Some even claim that Acts 6 has nothing to do with the office at all. However, I think there are a number of good reasons to adopt the traditional view that this passage refers either to the first deacons or at least a prototype of what became the office of deacons. And first is that a noun and a verb related to the Greek word diakonos are found in the first two verses of chapter 6. Second, the qualifications and the activities of the men described in Acts 6 correspond to the more detailed information given in 1 Timothy 3 for their qualifications. Third, if, if Acts 6 is not about the role of deacons, then we have no biblical information about what deacons are supposed to do. 1 Timothy 3 tells us about their qualifications, but Acts 6 is the only passage in the Bible that points to the responsibilities of deacons. Therefore, I would argue that the traditional and the majority reading of Acts 6 is that this does talk about the office of deacons. So let's start by looking at chapter 6. I'll read the first seven verses. This is God's word for us today. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is God's word for us tonight. Let's pray. Father, we hear from your word of an exciting time in the life of the early church. How you worked through seemingly ordinary men to bring about the spread of the word in Jerusalem and beyond. And we pray that we would rightly hear your word. We would respond in faith that our congregation would be the starting point of a great movement where more believers would come to faith where your word was spread abroad as it did in the early church in Montgomery and beyond. And that your name would be made great in the hearts of many. 
We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Christianity has always been about service. The Lord Himself is the model of servanthood. He is the archetype. He is the prime example. Philippians 2, verse 7 says that He made Himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. You could say slave. Jesus took on flesh in order to serve us, in order to show us what service looks like. Consider Christ in John chapter 13, where he served the disciples. Jesus came to Simon Peter, who said to the Lord, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I'm doing you do not understand, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you will never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, well, Lord, not only my feet also, but my hands and my head. And the Lord said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean. Jesus himself is our example of the servant who stoops down and takes the wash basin to wash those who have been dirty. And so when Christ washed the feet of the disciples, he then charged them to go and take that model and serve others. And we know that the apostles took their responsibility seriously. In the book of Acts, we see not only that they taught the word, but they served the church. They did very practical tasks. They oversaw the collection of money. They oversaw its distribution to the poor. But as the church grew in the book of Acts, a problem arose. There were too many people for the apostles to serve on their own. Some people were slipping through the cracks. This is where Acts 6 comes in. Verse 1, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. One of Luke's purposes in writing the book of Acts is to tell the story of remarkable, indeed supernatural growth of the church in the years after Jesus left this earth. He sent His Spirit to empower the people, and we see huge growth numbers throughout the book. Acts 2.41, And those who received the word were baptized, and they were added about 3,000 souls that day. Acts 2.47, And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Acts 4.4, Many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000 people. That's in Jerusalem. Acts 5.14, More than ever, believers were being added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women. Acts 9.31, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. We could keep going. Acts 13.49, Acts 16.5, Acts 19.20. All of this growth, it's a wonderful blessing, but not without its growing pains. Indeed, threats were popping up in the young church. The church was increasing in number, and some of the widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. And the fact that these were Hellenists, or Greek-speaking Jews, made it look like it could have been a race issue, as though the apostles were playing favorites. But it wasn't a race problem. It was an administrative problem. There were a large number of widows. Those widows needed daily attention, according to verse 1. There weren't enough workers 
And so the large number of widows combined with the daily task with the not enough workers was a recipe for a breakdown in administration. So what did the apostles do? They called a business meeting. They said, everybody in Jerusalem, all the church, let's get together. We've got to resolve this matter. Verse 2, and the twelve summoned the full number, number of disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up the preaching of the word to serve tables, the word of God to serve tables. And here we see the other side of the problem. Not only were widows being neglected, but there was the possibility of handling that issue of widows being neglected in a wrong way. There's a wrong way to solve that problem. And the wrong way would be that those who were called to serve the ministry of the Word should leave that, should put that down in order to go wait the tables to serve the widows. And Luke gives us a clear indication that the temptation to neglect the preaching of the Word is a big threat to the church. And he shows us that by the connection he makes between the Word of God in verse 2 and the Word of God in verse 7. In verse 2, he quotes the apostles saying that giving up the preaching of the Word of God would be a mistake. And in verse 7, he tells us what happened because they did not give up preaching the Word of God. And the Word of God, there's the connection again, increased and the number of disciples multiplied greatly. In other words, Luke wants us to see that the Word of God kept spreading and bearing fruit because the apostles did not make the mistake of leaving the preaching of the Word in order to fix an administrative problem. The major threat to the church, Luke is teaching us, is whatever threatens or undermines the ministry of the Word. And so the threat to the young church had multiple facets. On the surface, widows were being neglected. And behind that, underneath that, was pressure to neglect the preaching of the Word. But notice also that the nature of this problem wasn't merely physical. They were left out of the distribution. But there were spiritual. Spiritual problems. The physical neglect of the widows produced negative spiritual fruit. Verse 1 says a complaint was raised. But the language for complaint there is murmuring. The body is tempted to murmur, to grumble because of unfair treatment. Furthermore, the unity of the body was being undermined. A rift had formed between the Greek speakers and the Hebrew or Aramaic speaking Christians. The neglect of physical needs produced spiritual detriment to the body. And so we need to take note, deacons especially, we need to take note. Sometimes there's a temptation to think that deacon service, deacon ministry behind the scenes, Helping those in the shadows, helping the helpless, is less important. Right? We need the deacons to do the busy work so that the preachers can do what they need to do, the real ministry. It's interesting how this parallels to what I'm teaching in 1 Corinthians right now on spiritual gifts. That dichotomy of lesser work and greater work is wrong. The deacons play a vital role in the life of the body. 
Do not fall into the temptation of thinking that because your work will center primarily upon physical needs in the body, that your work is not of spiritual value. Indeed, this passage demonstrates the opposite principle, that neglect of the physical produces spiritual harm to the body. The Apostle James, who was probably there in Jerusalem for these discussions, tells us that caring for widows is pure and undefiled religion. That means widow work is godly work. And so we have a physical problem producing bad spiritual fruit. And so, how do they solve it? Well, with a physical solution that has a spiritual foundation. Look at verse 3. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. The apostle's solution under the guidance of the Holy Spirit was to fill the need with men that are full of wisdom and full of the Spirit. Let's look at how the apostles went about filling that need. The first qualification we could say of a deacon is that he must be chosen from among the congregation. It says, brothers, pick out from among you. It's very interesting to me that the apostles did not select these men. The congregation chose the men. This is significant for how we should understand the church to operate. The congregation is the highest human court of appeals in the church. The congregation makes the important decisions in the church, voting on leadership, membership, discipline. So it makes sense here that the congregation will be called upon to choose these men. Second qualification is that the deacons must be men of good repute. They should have a good reputation inside and outside of the church. They should be known for their Christ-likeness, for their association with the gospel. Their reputation and character should be above reproach. They should also be full of the Spirit. That means they're under the control of the Holy Spirit. They're bearing the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Deacons should be loving and joyful, patient, full of peace and kindness, full of goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. A deacon is someone who has made visible progress in personal holiness. But they should also be full of wisdom. Right? Wisdom is the ability to take God's revelation and apply it rightly. Apply it soundly to live a life that pleases God and blesses others. Wisdom is the ability to apply biblical ethics, to understand how the world works, to see the connections between cause and and effect in this world, and to act in such a way as to bring about God-glorifying effects. Deacons need to be wise men because they're leaders in the church. They often have to deal with sensitive, complex situations, especially involving the poor or the needy. They have to make judgments about how to handle funds and resources and the people who need them. Wisdom is crucial for a deacon. If you hold your finger here, we can flip over to 1 Timothy 3. We can see a few more character qualifications for the deacons. 
1 Timothy 3, starting in verse 8. It says, Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. And they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. We can go through these one at a time. A deacon must be dignified. That means worthy of respect. He's a man who is known by and respected by the rest of the congregation. Corresponds to what was in Acts 6.3. 6, someone of good repute, good reputation. They must not be double-tongued. That means he must not say one thing over here and then say something different over here. Negatively, it, this forbids any kind of deceptive or manipulative speech. But positively, it means a deacon must be a man of honesty and integrity. He should be a man of his word. Next, deacons must not be addicted to much wine. It clearly forbids drunkenness, which is a compromise of moral integrity. Not merely because of the destruction it causes, but because it sets a godless example for the rest of the flock. Drunkenness will destroy a deacon's reputation and his example and his ability to make wise decisions to serve and manage the church. Likewise, he must not be greedy for dishonest gain. That means no covetousness within him, no idolatry, no theft. And the fact that this quality is listed among the qualifications implies that the deacons have something to do with the finances of the church. Deacons handle money, other people's money, the church's money. And so we should examine a man's financial integrity before he's chosen to be a deacon. And it says that a deacon must hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. That means his life must be consistent with sound doctrine. He must be orthodox. However good his gift of service may be, it must align with the truth of Scripture, the doctrine in his heart. Down in verse 12, it says, Let deacons be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own household well. Husband of one wife could be literally translated, he should be a one-woman man. Doesn't mean that deacons have to be married any more that it requires deacons to have to have children by telling them to manage their children well. But the husband of one wife means that they ought to be committed, faithful, true to their spouse, monogamous in marriage, forbidding any inappropriate behavior towards women. Managing their children and their own households well. Since deacons are leaders in the church, they are set out to be an example of what good leaders ought to look like. And it starts in their home. They have very practical managerial and administrative roles in the church, and it makes sense that they should be men who sow some giftedness, some aptitude in managing their own smaller households before they set up to run the household of God. Going back to Acts 6, 
we can see some of the effects of having faithful deacons in the young church. What happens when they're instituted? The apostles told the congregation to select a few men to serve, and immediately the congregation is changed. The text goes for for portraying them as murmuring and divided to a unified body. Verse 4, the ministry of the proclamation was able to continue. The apostles were able to devote themselves to the ministry of the Word. Verse 5, the congregation was blessed. It says that the people were pleased by having deacons present to solve the practical problems of the distribution. Also in verse 5, unity is restored. The whole congregation, they were pleased with this plan. The Hellenists, the Hebrews... And then in verse 7, we see the Word of God continued to spread. That the disciples, the number of the disciples was growing, the church was growing, and even the priests were coming to faith. Luke is showing us that this in-house problem being solved resulted in renewed discipleship and evangelistic power. Even the priests who had been hostile to the church in chapter 4 are responding to the Word of God and obeying in faith. The church had been tested. And she had passed the test by caring for the widows and guarding the ministry of the Word. And God honored this with new power and fruitfulness. Now let me conclude with a couple of application points for the church. We're not all deacons. And that's good. We need diversity of giftings and callings among the body. But even for those of us who are not deacons, we have in this text an implicit call to prayer. We have in the deacon responsibilities and in the list of qualifications, we could say a paradigm, a chart, a guide for us to know how to pray for our deacons. We know from Scripture that all of our earthly efforts, all of our fleshly labors will fail without the blessing and the work of the Holy Spirit. And so it is incumbent upon us to pray for our deacons, to pray for their work and not merely the new ones. The old ones need prayer too. We should pray for their continued growth in these areas of character. One doesn't reach the finish line in this list of qualifications in this life. We will all need to continue to grow. We should pray for their protection from the evil one who will undoubtedly want to undermine and disqualify these men through character failings in these particular areas. We should pray for the work of our deacons, that they would have the wisdom to steward resources well, the compassion of Christ Himself, as they seek to serve, and that their service would have its intended effect among the body, that the Word of God would continue to spread and that the body would remain united. We should be prayerful for our deacons. But I also want us to see something else. Specifically in the picture of the gospel seen in the work of deacons. Deacons are, most simply, helpers. They're problem solvers. 
They're servants. And they help those who are helpless. And that couldn't be a clearer picture of Jesus. Could it? Jesus came to help those who could not help themselves. Jesus provides for the needs, both physical and spiritual, for all of those who come to him. Jesus is our great helper, our great servant. We could say he's our great deacon. We were helpless in our sin. We were unable to provide the relief we needed. We were unable to shake the chains of slavery to sin that had bound us. And Christ, in His compassion, became a helper. He became a servant. He became a slave. He stooped down to wash our dirty feet. Not just the apostles. He's washed us. And all we have to do is trust. Is to recline in faith into His arms. Into the everlasting arms that we just sang about. Jesus became the perfect helper. So that we might be saved. So that the bonds of Sin and slavery and shame may be shattered from our wrists. And He helped us in such a way that not only brings unity to the body, it brings unity between us and God. We were previously divided from God. There was disunity in the body, the people, disunity, estrangement between us and God. And Christ came and served us in the only way that could bring perfect unity between us and God. Perfect reconciliation. And He did so not for earthly glory and knowing full well that it would cost Him His life. And that's the good news of Scripture that is pictured in the work of deacons. It's a reminder to us of the message of the gospel. If you have not trusted in Christ, then I urge you to do so tonight. Let Christ help you. Let Him serve you. And you too can be made one, be united with the Almighty simply by faith in Christ. Now tonight... We have two men coming before us who have been approved by the pastors and the deacons, the congregation as a whole. The church has affirmed that these men meet the biblical criteria for the office and have expressed a desire, indeed a calling. And all that remains for, for us is to ordain them. I'd like to say a brief word about the process of ordination from our text. Acts 6.6 6 says that after choosing the deacons to serve in the Jerusalem church, the Bible says they set these before the apostles, they prayed, and they laid their hands upon them. There was a solemn ceremony in which the apostles prayed for the deacons. They also laid their hands upon these men who were about to serve. This is a symbol of many things in Scripture. A symbol of setting apart someone for a specific calling, a special task. It communicates praying for divine blessing and favor. 
and it communicates appointing to an office. The laying on of hands signified the apostles approved and commissioned these men to do the task for which they had been called. We see the laying on of hands throughout the New Testament as a way to signify that men were separated unto some appointed service or ministry. Acts 13.3, Paul and Barnabas are set apart for the ministry to which God had called them by the laying on of hands. 1 Timothy 4.14, 2 Timothy 1.6, both mention the laying on of hands in connection to Timothy and his ordination to ministry. 1 Timothy 5.22, Paul warns Timothy against laying hands on men too hastily, showing that men should not be set apart until they have been tested. We find the connection between ordaining men and laying on of hands throughout Scripture. So now I'd like to ask uh, John and Joshua if you would stand. And I want to issue a charge to them and then a charge to the church. I have some vows for you gentlemen. And I'm going to recite to you. And if you agree, if you can affirm to these vows, say, I do. Do you believe the Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments as originally given to be the inerrant Word of God, the only infallible rule of faith and practice? Do you sincerely receive and adopt the confessions of faith of this church as containing the doctrine taught in Holy Scripture? And do you further promise that that if at any time you find yourself out of accord with any of these doctrines... You will, on your own initiative, make it known to your pastors the change which has taken place in your views since the assumption of this ordination vow. Do you approve of the form of government and discipline of Morning View Baptist Church as conforming to the principles of biblical polity? Do you accept the office of deacon in the church and promise to faithfully perform all the duties thereof? and to endeavor by the grace of God to adorn the profession of the gospel in your life and set an example worthy before the church of which God has made you an officer? Do you promise subjection to your brothers in the Lord? Do you promise to strive for the purity, peace, unity, and edification of the church? Now it remains for the congregation to make a reciprocal vow. Congregation, can you affirm the following question? Please, If you can, please signify by saying, we do. Do you, the members of Morning View Baptist Church, acknowledge and receive these brothers as deacons? And do you promise to yield to them all the honor and encouragement and obedience in the Lord to which their office, according to the word of God and the bylaws of this church, entitles them? Amen.